Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. I want to just start off with a question for us to consider. Um, very simple question, jumping straight into the Bible stuff this morning. How does the world remember Jesus? Jesus actually asked his disciples a question kind of like this in Matthew 16. Jesus asked the disciples, hey, what do people say about me? This is Matthew 16. I'm not going to preach that, but if you want to look at it, you can. Jesus said to his disciples, what do people say about me or who do people say that I am? And the disciples shot back, well, some, some people think you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some people think you're Elijah. They were expecting Elijah to come back because Elijah didn't die. He rode off in a chariot and everyone's, all the Jewish people were expecting Elijah to come back and they thought maybe Jesus is Elijah back. Maybe he's John the Baptist back from the dead. Maybe he's Jeremiah, one of the prophets. I think it's interesting that they picked Jeremiah because Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. That's the type of prophet Jesus was, that he was confused with a guy who cried a lot. He was a man acquainted with many sorrows. Jesus was. So they thought, well, maybe you're John the Baptist, maybe you're uh, Elijah, maybe you're Jeremiah. And then Jesus asked them this question, who do you say that I am? And Peter piped up. This is one of the few times that Peter got things right in the Bible uh, prior to Pentecost. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, Blessed are you because you didn't learn this from another person, but God showed you this directly through revelation. Uh, So Peter was the first disciple where it clicked who Jesus was. And that's why Matthew 16 is such a significant passage because finally someone gets it. Now, Peter didn't fully get it, and you just have to read a few more verses where you realize Peter still didn't have his head totally wrapped around this idea that Jesus was the Christ and the Messiah. But Jesus was, uh, Peter was the first priest person to understand, at least to some degree, who Jesus was in the gospel. So, with that story in mind, I'll ask the question again. How does the world remember Jesus. If I were to ask that question, what do people say about Jesus or who do people say that Jesus was? I think if you went out on the street and interviewed a hundred people, you would get more than one answer. So I know that you would hear people say that Jesus was a teacher, that he came and he taught people things and he unpacked ideas. Some people would even say that Jesus was a false teacher, that what he taught was not an accurate reflection of the spiritual realities of the world. And some people reject Jesus' teaching. Some people would say that Jesus was a healer. And maybe they watched uh, 20 minutes of a History Channel documentary uh, one day when they couldn't find anything on TV and they saw all those ancient healers and they thought maybe Jesus was just one of those people who was ahead of his time and his understanding of medicine and chiropractics and uh, counseling and emotional health and maybe he was just a healer and a good person. Some people would say, some, some religious people even would say, that Jesus was a prophet that he was someone who had a close connection with God and spoke on behalf of God. Some people would say that Jesus was a false prophet. Do you see where I'm going with this? There's be a lot of different angles here. If you asked a Muslim person, they would say that Jesus was a good man who was chosen by God. 
Now, Jesus was a man, and he was chosen by God, but he was not just a man who was chosen by God. Moses is a man chosen by God. David was a man chosen by God. Jesus is God who became a man, which is so different than so many other uh, belief systems and, re- and faiths and religions who believe that somehow man, through righteous acts, can become a god. Christianity teaches that the exact opposite happened, that God became a man, that Jesus actually humbled himself. Instead of a man uh, working his way up, Jesus came down and humbled himself. So there's a huge difference there. And some people would not remember Jesus at all. Either they've never heard of him or they simply don't give him a lot of thought and they don't consider him. Now, something I've taught my kids, and I think it's true, is you can't ignore the existence of Jesus. Jesus Christ, just as a, as a historical figure, is the most prominent figure in the history of the world. There's no one who's had greater impact. Just If we just think about his impact on the history of the world, there's no one who's had a greater impact. I mean, we measure the year that it is based on his birth. Uh, the whole world, at least in the, the Western world, and actually parts of every part of the world pause in the in the winter to celebrate his birth even if that's not when he was born we still pause to do that hospitals have been built in his name churches universities and schools uh, have been built in the name of jesus and so no one had a greater impact than jesus jesus had a greater impact than abraham lincoln he had a greater impact than napoleon he had a greater impact than caesar i mean jesus is the most impactful so even if you aren't coming from a religious perspective if you're simply a student of history, you've got to look at Jesus and who he was. Now, Paul gives us instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read this for us. It'll be up on the screen as well. Paul says to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement for if we died with him we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we deny him he will also deny us. If we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So I asked you the question at the beginning, how does the world remember Jesus? And Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. So let's get clear how we remember Jesus. The world may not remember Jesus the way that the church remembers Jesus. How does the church remember Jesus? Number one, we remember that Jesus is risen from the dead. So I thought about, you know, this week uh, how when we go to a funeral we'll make statements in remembrance of a person well I remember this person loved this kind of music or this kind of I remember their favorite food was this and I remember going on a trip with this person and we remember the dead person right and I think we often treat Jesus and our stories of Jesus like we're remembering a dead person oh Jesus yeah he was great we're always speaking in the past tense like he's not still alive uh, in fact, I hear this occasionally, even from Christians, that, well, back when Jesus was alive, I'm like, have you not read about the resurrection yet? 
That's what makes Jesus so special is he's still alive. And I mean that in the most literal sense possible, not metaphorically, not as a poetic image, that he actually came back from the dead and did not suffer death a second time. That he actually ascended into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now praying for you and I, according to the book of Romans. So when we talk about Jesus and what he's like, let's remember that this is Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It's not that he was great, it's that he is great. It's not that he was a healer, he is still alive and is still a healer. He wasn't past tense a savior, he is and has always been a savior. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The fact that Jesus is risen from the dead means that he has power over death. The thing that scares the most people in the world is death. Jesus has power over death. The fact that Jesus defeated death indicates that he's not just a man, but he, he's God. He has divine power. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, and the same Holy Spirit that brought life to Jesus' body lives in every Christian. Which means that it's not the deficit in the Holy Spirit why we can't get out of bed in the morning. The Holy Spirit got Jesus out of the tomb. He can certainly get you out of bed if you'll just let the Holy Spirit lead you. The lack of wanting to get out of bed is a parental thing, uh, but uh, that's another sermon. But this is Jesus Christ risen from the dead and descendant of David. So not only is Jesus God, which means he's, he is the son, he's the son of the father. He's also a descendant of David. That speaks to his like human nature, that uh, that Jesus was born, he was a descendant of David. He came from David's family tree. Uh, God said to David, you're going to have a descendant who's going to reign on the throne forever. That was not Solomon or Josiah or some other king of Israel. That was referring to Jesus. So when Paul tells Timothy to remember Jesus, he gives uh, a little in, in, uh, insight here into what he's to remember of, about Jesus. Well, remember that Jesus beat death because he's God. Remember that Jesus also was the Messiah that was promised that was going to come from David's family tree. So this passage actually shows us two uh, areas of importance for why we remember Jesus. So remembering Jesus has an impact on our faith. It does something for us. There's a reason that uh, just simply remembering that Jesus was a teacher doesn't do anything for us. When you say Jesus was a teacher, people don't fall down on their face in worship. When you say Jesus was a good man, no one's willing to give their life for that. But when we remember that this is Jesus Christ risen from the dead, a descendant of David, it actually provides and motivates uh, some stuff in our life. So first, the importance of remembering Jesus is that it provides endurance in suffering. When we suffer... Looking back on Jesus or looking to Jesus or fixing our eyes on Jesus provides endurance when we suffer. Well, how does it do that? Well, number one, it reminds us of this essential truth that Jesus suffered. If you have this theology in your head that if I just do everything right and I never sin, there'll never be any hard things in my life and anything that's hard in my life is because I must have sinned somewhere or there's karma in the universe or whatever, See, that doesn't line up with Jesus because Jesus suffered. Did Jesus suffer because he did anything wrong? No. Jesus is the reason I don't believe in karma. Jesus should have had no bad juju, right? But, but for some reason, he took it all. 
And for some reason, I don't have to take that punishment because of Jesus. So I actually believe in atonement, justification, salvation. Uh, Jesus took the penalty for my sin. And so uh, Jesus is an example that even righteous people are going to suffer sometimes. And Jesus is an example that life's not fair (laughs) sometimes. But Jesus suffered. So if Jesus suffered, why would we think that we're not going to suffer? In fact, not only do righteous people sometimes suffer, you can suffer for your righteousness. We think sometimes that we suffer because we did something wrong. You can suffer for doing something right. And Jesus is proof of that. We don't always have to look to Job for that. We look to Jesus for that. Paul himself is suffering for the gospel of Jesus. He says this in verses 9 and 10. uh, The gospel of Jesus is for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment. Paul is locked up in prison right now. Talk about a quarantine. He's in jail. The word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, referring to the gospel of Jesus, I endure all things for the sake of those that are chosen so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. So Paul is suffering for Jesus, but this is what Paul is remembering about Jesus and what Paul is remembering that Jesus has taught him. Uh, First in verse 9, the word of God is not in prison. So Paul is locked up. He's literally in chains. And this is not a comfortable, this is not club-fed, comfortable federal prison. This is like he is in a cave or an underground prison. He's chained up. Actually, in those days, the rust from the wrists of the prisoners would cause the chains, uh, sorry, the sweat from your wrist would cause the chains to rust. They would grind against your wrists. So not only was Paul writing from prison, remember, a lot of what he's writing, he has a chain on him while he's writing these things. He doesn't have freedom to come and go as he please. He's suffering. They didn't have a meal service. They didn't have commissary in prison back then where someone could put money on the books. I I know too much about prison, it seems like. They didn't have someone that could come put money on your books. You were locked up in prison and you starved unless you knew someone in town who could come and slide food through your window or deliver it to you. And so Paul is completely dependent on other Christians anytime that he's locked up or someone else that God works in his favor, maybe a guard or something like that. But uh, a huge portion of the New Testament is written from prison, and that's why Paul says the word of God is not imprisoned. The writer of the New Testament, or much of the New Testament, was in prison, yet here we have the New Testament getting out, and the word of God is expanding while Paul is restrained. Do you understand that? Like while he was under incredible lockdown, quarantine, house arrest, whatever you want to call it, he's writing the word of God for us. I mean, it should be easy then, since we're not writing the word of God, it should be easy then for us to at least speak the word of God. When there are restrictions on us, when there are restraints on us, when we can't come and go as we please, it does say that the word of God is not imprisoned. I think for us we could say the word of God is not quarantined. The word of God does not have a mask over its mouth. The word of God is not restricted or restrained. So even though you might be chafing and I'm chafing under all the restrictions that we live under, that is not a limitation for the word of God. If Paul could write it, we can proclaim it. 
And we have to make sure that we're finding creative ways to get the word of God out. I'm so grateful for our team that got these cameras set up and figured out how to get off dial-up internet and all that stuff that we had to do so that we could stream these services. I'm grateful for our discipleship groups. I'm grateful for uh, other things apps and websites and things that we use to get the word of God out and we're going to have to look for other more creative ways to do that because the word of God is not imprisoned and we're going to have to find ways to get the word of God out uh, something else that uh, remembering Jesus provides endurance for is the spread of the gospel I hope that the difficulties that we're facing now are not preventing us from advancing the gospel and I'll just be honest with you sometimes I'm afraid that they are. And I hope that like in the midst of everything that we're going through in the world that we're not setting our faith aside and forgetting to advance the gospel. But, but I think sometimes we are. Uh, I just, I'm not sure that we are being as effective as we could be given the unique opportunity that we're in. I think we're advancing our political opinions I think that we're uh, advancing conspiracy theories. I think that we're advancing other things because as I have conversations with people, I think more people would rather talk about politics than the gospel. More people would rather post on social media about politics than the gospel. There's got to be some sort of ratio. You know, like at least for everything you, every ridiculous political post you put, you should at least have like a Bible verse to balance it out or something like that. You know, there's got to be some sort of ratio. It can't be 100% ridiculous nonsense on Facebook and then no gospel, no testimony, no witness. And I think that we're getting taken over and distracted by everything that's going on and we're not effectively communicating now the gospel. When the whole world needs the gospel sometimes we're just giving them garbage and nonsense and the garbage and the nonsense we got to stop because this is when people are receptive and let's not waste our testimony and waste our witness on our personal political persuasions whether they be conservative or liberal let's not waste this opportunity by getting caught up in the distractions that satan would want us to get caught up in this is when the world is listening and we ought to be getting very focused right now, not distracted. Uh, because, as Paul said in verse 10, I'm enduring all things for the sake of those that are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. In that moment where he's restricted and restrained and he's suffering, he's narrowing his focus to getting the gospel out for the salvation of other people. And I think that that's what we should be doing because this, for many of us, this is as close as we'll be to restrained and restricted. You know, I hope that no one here ends up in prison. Uh, especially, well, actually, I'd rather you get in prison for your faith than for other things. But this is the closest many of us are going to get to some sort of restriction and house arrest, right? So let's make sure that we're being opportunistic with getting the gospel out and sharing that. Uh, God also can redeem our suffering by using it as an opportunity to pro proclaim the gospel. Last thing that I want to point out here is in verse 10, uh, that, that others may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. I don't know if you have thought through what the Bible means when it says glory. When it talks about glory, it's talking about heaviness or weightiness. I think, when I think of glory, I usually think of shininess. 
You know, something that shines and glimmers, has glory. But the Bible talks about glory as having heaviness. Like, an example would be when my wife told us, uh, told me that she was pregnant for the first time. Oof, there was this weightiness. That's kind of like what glory is. Or uh, you get a promotion at work and you feel like the heaviness of that responsibility is on your shoulder, that oof, it's a weightiness. So God's glory is, you know, if we're worshiping or we're praying or we're reading, you read a passage and all of a sudden, oof, the weight of that, that's glory. Does that make sense? So Paul says uh, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, I love this passage, he says, the momentary light affliction that this temporary tough thing that you're going through for a moment, it is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. So what was momentary, uh, momentary light affliction is going to be an eternal, corresponding with momentary, weight, corresponding with light, glory, corresponding with affliction. The opposite, I mean, what you re receive when you suffer is glory. You receive the, whew, the heaviness of what God is doing in the world and what God is doing through you. And uh, many of us are certainly gaining weight during lockdown. I hope that the weight that we're gaining is the weight of God's glory. That was a pre-planned sermon joke. I know that that went way over your heads. Think about that one later. But listen, when you suffer, when you go through difficult things, you, you have this opportunity to learn a lesson you couldn't learn otherwise. You have an opportunity for the, whew, the heaviness of God's glory to come on you. And God uses suffering. That's why Jesus carried so much glory in his ministry because Jesus suffered innocently, unjustly, so much, and he carried a lot of glory on him, and there was a lot of weightiness on the words that Jesus said. I, uh, I was talking with uh, a friend of mine who's been through some difficult things lately and because of the, all the restrictions I haven't been able to interact with him as much as normally and so man he has grown significantly over the last six months and I haven't really watched it like all of a sudden he went from like fun to really wise and all the stuff that he's been going through the last six months like all of a sudden he sounds like some philosopher but the words that come out of his mouth are like, whoa, there's weight. Like the way you said it, the way it came out of your mouth and off your tongue, off your lips, was like, wow, there's some weight to that. But he didn't get that, you know, by living a, as we would say, where I grew up, hunky-dory, you know, like easy life. He had to suffer for that weight. And so if we're going to suffer, we might as well increase the weight of God's glory that's on us. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's one of the first things that remembering Jesus does is it gives us endurance when we're suffering. When you're going through a difficult thing, lost your job, lost your house, an, you know, a relational issue that's going on, can I suggest this? Remember Jesus. When you're suffering, remembering Jesus will help you endure and stay faithful in that suffering. I love in Hebrews it says that we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who was unable to sympathize with us in our weakness and suffering, but we have one who suffered in all ways just as we have, yet he was without sin. 
I mean, the writer of Hebrews is just saying, listen, Jesus knows what you've been through. In fact, he knows it better than you know it. And if you remember Jesus when you're going through suffering, it'll provide endurance. And then the other thing it'll do, this is the second thing in this passage, is it motivates our relationship with Jesus. Picking up in verse 11 is this like old school, early church, first century hymn. It's part of a song or a poem that they would sing or read in their gatherings. Verse 11 through 13, it says, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, referring to Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The key word in this passage, or this portion of the passage, is with. This whole section I just read is about our relationship with Jesus. Christianity is not learning about Jesus, uh, acquiring facts about Jesus. It is being with Jesus and in Jesus. Those are the types of prepositions that we want to use when we describe our relationship with Jesus, is that we are with him. We are in relationship with him. So Paul actually uses this hymn and he breaks down four ways that we relate to Jesus. It's, he says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. Now, technically, theologically, we died, if you're a Christian, you died with Jesus. When he was on the cross, you were on the cross in Jesus or with Jesus. I know, you know, you weren't there. I get it. You weren't old, like you weren't that old. I get it. You weren't there. But theologically, positionally, you died with Jesus so that when he died, you died. And then when you came to Jesus, there's like a personal experience of that death. Uh, like you're saying to yourself, the old me is dead and there's a new me now. I'm a new creation in Jesus. The old has gone and the new has come. We died with Jesus. Romans 6 says this, and I'm going to look at Romans 6 because I want to spend a couple minutes in Romans 6. Romans 6 says that we died with Jesus. Uh, Romans 6 eight. if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's exactly what this passage is saying. It's, it's, well, it's written by the same person, so no wonder that it says the same thing. If we died with Jesus, we'll live with him. So, if I can do that in reverse, if you want to live with Jesus, what must you do? Die with him. Which means the old you, your selfishness, your me, me, me attitude, it's got to die. The old you is put off and the new person in Christ is put on. Romans 6, 6 says this, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Do you, let me ask, do you have an old self? I do. I remember old Jim. Every now and then he pays a visit. He's annoying to me even. Even old Jim gets on my nerves, you know. And I'm like, old Jim, you're dead, dude. What, what am I doing when I say to old Jim, you're dead? I am reckoning or considering old Jim dead. And, and that's what Romans 6 goes on to say. Knowing this, that your old self was crucified with him. And then verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So when the old you comes, 
trying to get into the same old stuff that you used to do, you say, you're dead. I reckon you dead or I'm considering you dead to sin. New Jim, your name's not Jim, so new you is alive in Jesus. Totally different person. You know, maybe you look the same, maybe you got, you got the same DNA, like I get that, but spiritually, which is the essence of your being, you're a new person. The old you is dead. But if you want to live with Jesus, you're going to have to die with Jesus. There's no life with Christ outside of death with Christ. We solidify that or publicly state that in baptism. That's what baptism is. If you've ever thought about what baptism means, baptism is the public profession that you make where you say, hey, I died and now I'm alive in Jesus, which is why we bury you in water and then you're resurrected and come out. The, the whole picture behind baptism it says, uh, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Okay, we're not washing your sins off when we put you under that water because we do it in dirty lakes anyway. You're probably dirtier when you come out. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness. So this is the meaning of baptism. When we put you under that water, you're buried. That's, that's a symbol of your death. But then when you come out, you're resurrected. It's, it's a symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. You're saying, me too. I was with Jesus when that happened, even though I wasn't alive. Positionally or le spiritually, legally, you were with Jesus when that took place. And your baptism is you saying that out loud and kind of putting a stamp on that. And that's what baptism is. Paul goes on and he continues and he says that if we endure, uh, we will also reign with him. To endure is to stick with it when times are tough. It's easy to stick with it when everything's working out. But when times are tough, when you are suffering, when things are getting difficult, do you endure? Do you stick with Jesus? Because that's what leads to us reigning with him. Because there is going to come a time when things are really good, when G Jesus has returned, he's reigning on the earth. And do you know who's going to reign with Jesus? The faithful Christians, those who endured. I mean, I know that this is kind of a weird thing and, and people have a hard time wrapping their head around it, but there is going to come a day Jesus is going to return. He's going to rule the earth for a thousand years there's going to be one final battle and then satan's going to be totally done away with and so who's going to rule with jesus he's not going to rule alone he actually is training christians to be able to rule with him during that thousand years so you might be in charge of something i hope some of you are in charge of the garbage pickup so i'm trying to get my trash out on time but someone is going to reign with Jesus. Christians, the church is going to reign with Jesus for a thousand years. And so you're being prepared to reign. I, mean, I know it might not feel like that when you're running late for work or when you're having an argument in your household. It might not feel like you're getting ready to rule the world. <laughs> but you are. You're going to reign with Jesus. But what do you have to do if you want to reign with Jesus? You have to endure. You can't give up. You can't quit. You can't turn your back on Jesus. Which then leads to the next part where it says if we deny him he will also deny us so we want to have this nice little picture where well you know if I get embarrassed about Jesus I can just like downplay that keep it keep my relationship with Jesus on the down low not to really talk about it but this is a hard verse if we deny him he'll deny us which I 
in my imagination, it goes a little bit like this. We're in a public setting or someone asks us what our relationship with Jesus is like. They ask us a question about Jesus or they get into our spiritual lives. We say, yeah, I don't, I don't follow Jesus. And then someday we stand before God and he just quotes us. He says, yeah, he doesn't follow me. That's what he said. We say, I don't follow him. And he says, he doesn't, I don't know him. And Jesus says, he doesn't know me. Those are his words or her words. And it says that if we deny him, he's going to deny us. That's a hard, hard word, but it's, it's in there. And so I just want to encourage you to, you can't wait for the moment of trial to decide what you're going to say. You need to think through, okay, if I'm in that situation, how's it going to go? I mean, what am I willing to lose? Am I lo- willing to lose a job? Am I willing to lose a relationship? Because for real, people back off their faith at work so they don't lose their job. People back off their faith so they can keep that girl or that boy. And it may even get to the point where you lose your life. But are you going to deny Jesus or name him or proclaim him or say that you're with him? Because if we deny him, he will also deny us. And then finally it says in verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now that is not contra- uh, contradicting the previous statement, just saying that the reason Jesus is faithful is not because we're so good and lovable and cute. The reason Jesus is faithful is because he's just faithful to the core. He can't help but be faithful. He cannot de- deny himself, it says in verse 13. So Jesus is not going to deny his own character and his own nature. So this is like when I read this, if we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. You know what I take from that? Your choices matter. The worst thing you can do is tell a person their choices don't matter because they won't take any responsibility for their life. So I'm telling you, your choices do matter. If you endure with Jesus and stay faithful to Jesus, there's going to be a reward for that. But if you deny him, there's going to be another denial where he denies you the way you denied him. Now, remember Jesus, risen from the dead, descendant of David, Baptism is not the only way that we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's actually what we would call the ordinances of baptism and communion are things that Jesus gave us to remember his death. And one of the, I think it's fascinating about those two things that both baptism and communion are pointing us to the same event that took place, which is Jesus' death. I mean, what does baptism point us to? Jesus' death and us being with him in his death. What does communion point us to? His death. There was obviously, Jesus wanted us to never forget about his death because these two uh, practices that he gave us are pointing us back to his death. We don't take a communion to celebrate uh, uh, Pentecost. We don't take communion to celebrate his birth. We don't take communion to celebrate miracles. But we, or his transfiguration, but we take communion to celebrate his death. We baptize to remember his death. There's something that Jesus wants to, us to remember about his death, what it meant, what it accomplished, the, mean, you know, the meaning behind it, and what he did through his death. So this morning we're going to uh, take communion, 
you probably received uh, your elements on the way in. If you did not get one of these on the way in, raise your hand and Candy will make sure that you get one. So this is admittedly, this is not my preferred method of taking communion. Because when I picture it in my mind, it's a bunch of friends around a table with a big old loaf of carb-loading bread and wine, and they're talking, and it's part of a larger meal. So I think of like a potluck or a Thanksgiving dinner. I certainly don't think of this. But with the circumstances that we're living in, this is what we got to do here, but this is not a permanent thing. On this, uh, if you're doing this at home or if you're doing this here in the room, we have this little wafer, and at home you may have bread, and there's a meaning to this little wafer, and it is to represent Jesus' body. This wafer represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. I want you to be thinking about Jesus getting beat, Jesus being whipped, Jesus being uh, spit on, his hair and his beard being ripped out. They took a crown of thorns and jammed it on his forehead, causing blood. To, I mean, Jesus didn't just uh, die this quick, painless death. This was brutal. And Jesus suffered. His body was beaten. He had bruises. He had open wounds for hours. I mean, to the point where maybe his, his internal organs were exposed, possibly. So his body was broken before he ever died. And this bread represents his body, which is broken. And then the, we use grape juice out of, out of consideration or those that are uh, beating an alcohol addiction. The grape juice represents his blood. And his blood being poured out makes us think of him on the cross when he was nailed to the cross between two thieves, when he was suffering on the cross. Yet in the midst of his suffering, he was still having lucid conversations where he was uh, atoning for our sin, where he was making sure that his mother was uh, cared for, where he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and his blood was being poured out for us for, to make atonement, which is to reconcile us to God and to put us at one with God. Uh, so we use the juice or grape juice to remember his blood want to read these communion declarations that we have on the screen. Uh, we're going to read these together in a moment, but from Ephesians 4, what I first read this morning, um, it said there's one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's also one communion. There's one Lord's Supper, you know. This is something that Christians do all over the world and have been doing for 2,000 years. This puts us in touch with the larger church. I want you to know that today there are other churches all over Philly and all over the world doing this as well. I mean, there are churches doing this in other languages. There are uh, Hispanic churches doing this in Spanish. There are black churches. There are uh, Asian churches. There are churches in other countries that are, that are doing this today. So this is not just us, you know, the 25 or so of us that are in the room plus those that are watching doing this. This is, we're doing this with the, millions of other Christians today. And I want to remember the connection that we have with them. And what do we have that's connecting us with them? This reminds us that it's Jesus' death. That Jesus died for them. He died for us. He died for the church across town. He died for the church on another continent. That puts us in union and helps us to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace.
This communion is a unifying practice for the Christian church. It humbles us, and it reminds us of what he purchased. So let's read this together. Uh, If you're at home, you can read it out loud. If you're in the room, I would love it if you would read this with me so I don't feel so lonely up here, all right? We believe that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We believe that in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We declare that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With reverence and solemnity, we declare that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We advise that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So we're going to take a moment and let you examine yourself, or even better, ask Jesus to examine you. Um, we're also going to share on our uh, the live feed of this service, and if you're in the room and would like this, a just two-page little document for uh, communion at home. Whether you're doing this as an individual or in small groups, uh, if you, you don't have to wait for us to serve communion. The original communions for the first hundred couple hundred years of the church were served in houses, not church buildings, during Sunday services. So we're going to give you this little resource for home-based communion. You can grab it in the comment section of the feed, or we can send it to you if you're in the room here, um, so that you can do communion. This is the fifth time I've taken communion this week, but it's the first time I've done it in church. The same can be true of you. You do not have to wait for this. So Jesus As we take a moment to examine ourselves, I pray that you would speak to us, bring clarity. If there's sin, Lord, convict it, empower repentance in us so that we would change our minds about whatever thoughts lead us to sin. I ask also, Lord, that you would provide encouragement where there needs to be encouragement. For those that have been enduring, for those that have been faithful, for uh, those that need something to fill us up and are kind of broken and feel kind of empty, would you give us words of encouragement to strengthen us as we go forward. Jesus, if we did this without proclaiming your death, we would be wrong in doing it. So we do proclaim your death, that you died as a substitute for us, taking the penalty of our sins so that we could live free from penalty, uh, so that we can use uh, suffered separation from God so that we no longer had to suffer separation from God. 
that your word says in Isaiah 53 as well as Matthew 8 that even the the stripes on your back from where you were whipped provide our healing, our physical healing in our bodies. We receive all of those benefits. We want everything that you purchased when you died on the cross. So we take this bread, which represents your body, and we bless it. We take this cup, which represents the blood of the new covenant, and we bless it. As we take these, I pray that you would give us grace to know your death, what that means for us. Lord, we do this in remembrance of you because you told us uh, to remember you when we do this. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.